how can we also honor that intergenerationally, like things are starting to change? Like I've noticed in our generation, like in my mom's generation, the narrative was always around erasure. Erase your Asian identity. Don't lean into the fact that you're a daughter of immigrants or that your skin or hair color is different. Just blend in with the wallpaper and don't draw any attention to yourself and find that stable job and find a partner and have a family. Where now, I think given the rise of social media, and I would argue I'm going into adulthood, I became a digital native. Like we didn't have like cell phone, like we had the way old Mac computers back then. But like the rise of social media has given all of us a microphone where we mm -hmm. can be our own hype people and we can find people across the internet to be our hype people too. And it's a fascinating world that we live in. You're listening to the Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Hey there. Today, we're talking to Tiffany Yu, who has been named one of the 100 most influential Asian Americans of 2017 and a 100 visionary leaders list, not to mention women of influence honoree. Her work has been featured in Marie Claire's, Forbes, The Guardian, The Ford Foundation, The Wall Street Journal, and she has personally spoken at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, TEDx, and Harvard. You can find her work in the Economic Business Forum, Business Insider, Fortune, and so many more. Tiffany is an advocate for people with disabilities, and she talks about her journey. In the episode, we talk about her courageous journey overcoming her own disability, and then realizing that embracing her disability was actually what gave her the most amount of power. She recounts her journey along the way of finding acceptance, not just within others, but within herself as well. Thank you so much for being on the show here, Tiffany. I just didn't want to miss it because you were about to tell a story and I love stories. <laughs> or I could have waited until we started recording. But the story is that when we first started, it's called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, people thought we weren't going to make it past two years. And two years would have been like 20K of grants awarded. And now we're at over 65,000 and five years in running. And we made it through a pandemic when we know people's financial situation, our trustees who contribute the money every month. We know their situations changed and we just continue to award grants every month. That's huge. By the way, I was trying to figure this out. Is this directly tied into the Georgetown Disability Empowerment Endowment Fund? No, so that's a whole... That's a whole so separate a, thing. Yeah, that's a whole separate thing. So the story behind that is in 2017, I feel extremely privileged because not only did my mom work really hard and support me through my own college trajectory, I then worked at Goldman. I saved up a lot of money and I wanted to pay it forward. So I reached out to George in 2017 and I said, hey, I'm thinking of starting a scholarship fund for disabled students because at least for me, I feel like my education became the key to getting that internship at Goldman. And it's funny because I mentioned Goldman and now I'm a disability advocate, but I actually think that those years in the corporate world lend mm -hmm. a lot of credibility to my work now. But in 2017, mm -hmm. they said, okay, it's going to take $100,000 if you want to start this fund. And we had come up with a payment plan. And then they said, hey, Tiffany, we feel uncomfortable with calling it a disability scholarship. And here I am, I've done so much work in 
I guess at that time, it had been eight years of telling people that disability is not a bad word. I take pride in a disability identity. Just say the word. I have a friend who just started a hashtag called hashtag say the word. And I went back to them. I said, I didn't say it in these exact words, but I was like, the fact that you're coming to me, a disability advocate, telling me that you as a non-disabled person feel uncomfortable with how I want to name a scholarship. I don't know if this is the right place for it. So that was 2017. So we decided not to move forward with it. Come 2020, 2021, one of the professors that I had at Georgetown, or I didn't have, she was one of the supporters of my work, looped me into some of the work that was going on campus to create a disability cultural center at Georgetown. Wow. And on the call, I said years ago, almost five years ago, I had thought about starting a disability scholarship, but I'm wondering if we can broaden the scope to disability initiatives and call it a disability empowerment fund. And so I went back, I restarted that conversation after feeling a little bit scarred in 2017 that they didn't like the name. And I said, this needs to be called disability empowerment. And we fought a little bit, but then they said, okay. And then wow. I said, I'm out of the 100K, I'm going to put in 50. I was feeling ambitious because crypto, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I feel like I'm joking, <laughs> but not joking. So I said, I'm going to put in 50K, but I would love to see the campus community and Georgetown community rally around this to help us get to the 100K and come. And then big news, maybe you didn't find this in your research, come 2023, we received another pledge that come 2023, the Disability Empowerment Endowed Fund will be fully funded and start making distributions. Wow. Yeah. So we, so we raised 100k. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's absolutely massive. And I can't imagine how many people I was going to help. Yeah. I, wow. Oftentimes I look to initiatives in the API community, like Gold House is one of them that is really doing a good job of saying this community has power and influence. We are selling, their first initiative was called Gold Open, where they were buying out movie theaters and saying, we want more Asian stories and mm -hmm. authentic Asian cast. And so, yeah, so that's where the kind of that intersection comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a big part of the Big Asian Energy mission, of course, was that we want want to hear the Asian side of the story. It's not just Asian stories, but it's the Asian side of the stories. I feel like so many change makers, including some of the people I've spoken to, CEOs and people who have made huge differences, I feel like when they're retelling their story, there's a little bit of a side where they'll, I wouldn't say hide, but they wouldn't promote their own background and lineage. I think there's a little bit of fear of how they'll come off if they do. And it's a complex cultural world. And I think one of the podcasts that I was listening listening to you talk about, I think it was the Nikki Grom podcast, you're talking about languaging and how languaging is such an important thing. You're talking about the words like trauma, for example, and we have all of these parts of our origin stories and we don't owe anyone. I'm just going to quote you here because I love this quote, right? <laughs> we don't owe anyone our origin stories. We're constantly questioned on it. That's always part of this back and forth struggle we have with that, that identity. So I always like to start with the question, which is where are you from? Because I like to let people reclaim that ownership. So where are you from, Tiffany? I actually think that my Asian identity only in the last couple of years has really made me better understand intersectionality and what's called disability intersectionality about how my Asian-ness impacted how I viewed my identity. But where am I from? Born and raised in the US, born in Washington, DC, raised in Bethesda, Maryland. My mom is a refugee from the Vietnam War and my dad is an immigrant from Taiwan. So this part of the journey that you had, you're raised in America. And would you feel comfortable sharing the part of your journey, of course, the car crash, the accident? 
if, yeah. if that's yeah. Right. So I'm sure as you see, I call these our disability origin stories. And mm-hmm. as you quoted me, we don't owe our origin stories to anyone. But part of the reason why I share them is not only do they provide context, but exactly like you said, they allow us to reclaim that narrative. And when we don't provide that context or don't reclaim our narratives, we give space for other people to make assumptions. And that's part of why I share. So a turning point in what I call my first disability origin story happened when I was nine. A couple of my siblings and I decided to drop my mom off at the airport. She was going on a business trip to Taiwan. On the way home, my dad lost control of the car and he unfortunately ended up passing away. And my sister and my brother and I were in the car and all of us acquired different injuries. But I think mine ended up becoming the most, I was going to say the most permanent, but really the most visible. And so I ended up permanently paralyzing one of my arms. It's known as a brachial plexus injury. I also shattered a couple bones in one of my legs. If people are familiar with anatomy, I shattered my femur and my tibia. Those are like the two big bones in your leg. And then much later, I would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the type of mental health disability. And yeah, I'll pause there. Okay, great. I don't know if I continue. So I'll say this one last thing. What I do want to share from that origin story is that to me, this isn't just a story about disability. It's a story about compounded grief. And the grief is the change in my body. Grief, as many of us understand in terms of losing a loved one, but then also the grief, and I don't think enough people talk about this, but the loss of childhood innocence or AKA childhood trauma, right? And I think as a kid, what exacerbated what ultimately ended up becoming PTSD was I did not know how to handle all of that grief. Of course, given the fact that you were still at such a young age, from reading on the other things you've mentioned, especially on this journey of healing and empowerment, you talk about how you now have a support team. You have a support network. Was any of that available to you when you were in the early stages of development? What was that like? How did little Tiffany come to become the the powerhouse influence icon that she has become today? What was Mm -hmm. that journey like? Yeah. You just made me reflect on something funny, which is my therapist. My therapist is curious about how I became this as well. (laughs) And I mentioned that because it was never vocalized, but after the car accident, what I had learned and internalized was that we should not share anything about ourselves that might cause shame to the family unit, right? At least in my Asian cultural context, shame is viewed in the family. Yes. So here is a car accident. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was instilled in me that I shouldn't tell anyone about the car accident. So I didn't. I told everyone my dad was away on a trip. Only very select few people knew that he had passed away. And then I wore long sleeves all the time to hide my arm. And when you asked me where I was from, I wanted to share that disability intersectionality because embedded within this one body is silence and shame around like my Asian identity, yeah. I noticed discriminated a lot against my my disability identity or the fact that I had experienced trauma or lost a loved one. So for 12 years, I didn't tell anyone. And even now, as people either listen to podcasts like this or see things that I post on social media, I'll get notes from people that I went to elementary school, middle school, high school with who will say things like, Tiffany, I knew about the car accident, but I didn't know about your dad. I'm really sorry. Or I'll get comments from people I went to high school with who say, I knew about your arm, but I didn't know that it was from a car accident. I assumed it was from birth. 
That's why I talk a lot about origin stories and reclaiming the narrative. So I did have a turning point in 2009 where I was a senior in college, had just finished my summer internship in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and had my full-time offer in hand. So I felt, I don't know. And I wonder if being the daughter of Asian immigrants, like that felt like success to me. So now like I had the thing that would make my family happy, right? You've earned it, the right, the permission. Now you can have other areas, yeah. Yeah, and so I started to get really curious. I'm like, okay, I know where, I feel confident where I'm going after I graduate from college. What are some other areas that I can grow in while I'm in a safer container of being in a collegial university environment? And one part of my story that some people know is that when I was a freshman, I started a club at Georgetown, a Taiwanese American club. And interestingly enough, we started the Taiwanese American club, like there was another club called the Chinese Student Alliance. And they were like, why are you creating a a Taiwanese club? Like we're all encompassing. But anyway, we were stubborn and we started the Taiwanese American club, but we ended up like winning. We won like a new Taiwanese club award. Like I got Mm. really plugged into the Taiwanese American community and Mm. coming out of this Goldman Sachs internship. Now the Taiwanese club was like legacy on its own. I was like, I did the Taiwanese club. Like what about a disability club? And I will say that the decision to decide to share that story, the story of the car accident was, that's such a good question. I don't know if, I feel like what's coming up for me right now is out of desperation. Like I felt so alone in this disability identity. I really wanted to someone to see the truth because keep in mind that from nine years old until age 21, long sees all the time, dad's away on a trip, no one knows about the car accident and I'm just going around not being myself and I have to keep track of the secret, which is weird because it's the truth. So I will say that I think the person that you're seeing now is so different from my mom. And that's why my therapist is curious because my mom is still, don't tell anyone about the car accident, put this holy water on your arm to maybe end surgeries, maybe to fix your arm. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we use terminology like warrior a lot in Mm -hmm. disability spaces. You're always fighting. And that felt really exhausting to me. And I didn't want to be, they call us like BPI warriors, like brachial plexus injury warriors. I didn't want to be a BPI warrior anymore. I just wanted to be little Tiffany who happened to have a paralyzed arm and not have to always feel like I was fighting. I was also born in Taiwan. And there was a time I was going through my own healing journey and I was uh, talking to a therapist and it was great. It was one of the most powerful things that I think I'm so grateful that I went through. And when I told my mom about it, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of, okay, but fine, but just don't tell anybody that you're going through it. There was a lot of shame about speaking up about this. So when you were telling me the story, two questions came up in my mind. The first one was when you first started owning what you had gone through and actually speaking about it, creating this disabilities organization on campus, you must have been quite young still. You were still in university. How did your parents deal with that? Was there any pushback? Was there a struggle or conversation while you went through? Even now, I'm 34 now. I started the first iteration of Diversibility when I was 21. So we've been around for 13 years. My mom calls it monkey business. Still does in in 2022. But it's like, how can we honor and have compassion for her generation? So she recently said to me, she recently said, Tiffany, I feel like I failed as a mom. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, all of my friends can brag about their kids and I don't feel like I can brag about mine. Oh my gosh. And I actually wrote a post about this and I said, I wish I could like one of these years or one of these days, I'm going to collect testimonials from everyone who's been impacted by our work at Diversibility. And I'm going to put them in a book and I'm going to give them to my mom. (laughs) 
Because I think that for her, all she sees is that I'm sharing family shame. I mean, I'm in the process, like very early stages right now of drafting out what might become a memoir. You know, when you write a memoir, you think like hard thing that happens at the beginning, but what's the triumph at the end? And I was talking with my writing group about what my triumph at the end was. And they think it's that first time you gave that TED talk where finally you're on the TEDx stage and you are sharing a story that you didn't tell anyone about for 12 years. I remember in my group, so I gave my first TED talk in my hometown and my mom says, Tiffany, are you getting paid for that? And she also didn't come. And so I think that some of the nuance that I wanna highlight, at least even in this conversation in my life too, is that I feel like I can be very celebrated in what I've done to amplify and uplift the disability community. And it's okay that my mom still doesn't acknowledge that this is a real job and is not supportive in the way that my white peers and their parents might be. <laughs> right. And I think this is why community is such a big and such an important thing. It is a generational shift. What we're constantly seeing is that there is a newer generation of Asian Americans who are, I think, much more understanding of the global context behind these cultures. It's not one track. It's much more complex and it is intersectional. When you were mentioning the idea that she doesn't see it as a real job, I just had to shake my head because I can so relate to that. Yeah. And I will acknowledge a lot of advocacy work pays zero dollars. And I think for me... I feel really proud that like, I call it creative entrepreneurship or even advocacy where I do have a very large part of where I spend my time Mm -hmm. with my advocacy hat on that pays zero dollars, but has huge impact. And so Mm -hmm. then I had to be creative about how am I going to make a $50,000 donation to Georgetown for this endowment? (laughs) Because I got really excited about something, but yeah, like. How can we come up with creative ways to support ourselves that don't look like the nine to five that our parents, at least that my immigrant parents would have been like a dream Mm -hmm. for them? Absolutely, because their value system might be different. Their sense of what is valued and even the idea of what societal value is to them, going back to that kind of like very stereotypical doctor or lawyer kind of stereotype holds that because there is that kind of cultural backing where there's a very linear, this is right, this is not right, or this is less right. And it's very hierarchical. Yeah. And I mean, we don't... And, oh, I was going to say, you can also... Oh, sorry. Why don't you finish? Sorry. I run a podcast too, and I feel like I'm an interrupter. So I'm going to... No, finish. please. I, I love this. Please interrupt away. <laughs> We're here to hear your well, stories. So well, well, what what you want to share is important. Yeah. It's like, you can look at Tiffany now, like full-time disability advocate, mom not super supportive. Also keep in mind that I have a lot of really trying to fulfill this model minority of I went to Georgetown, I worked at Goldman, like I tried to do all the things. And there's another disability advocate, Mia Ives Rubley, and she says, because we're disabled, we can never be the model minority. And when I heard her say that, it beat that brain exploding emoji. I was just like, I was trying, and I even look at it like this relationship with my mom. And I think things still are in the family unit, but they're changing with our generation. But it was like, I did all the things, but because I have a disabled body, and I don't know, maybe I'll go home and confirm this with my mom, is that I will never be like the physical ideal of perfection that I think maybe she had envisioned out of her kids and why she worked so hard. So even though I had all the accolades, I think actually this is why I actually moved 
to doing disability advocacy work is I said, I literally have tried to textbook do all the things that I think my mom would have wanted her kid to do. Mm. And it's still not enough. And so now let me think about what I want to do. When Mm. you talk about your own healing journey, and I'm just like, I spent maybe 20 years. Yeah, actually, it was 20 years after becoming Mm -hmm. disabled, trying to do things so that she could brag about me to her friends. (laughs) God, right. Yeah. That one line that to how do we become the good son and daughter that my parents could then brag to their friends about that I feel is such an internal journey for it's such an internal battle for so many Asian Americans that I know of in their entire lives. And there's that shift that handover that you talked about where you go from how do I be perfect? How do I be the perfect child? And then you hit these check marks, right? Like Goldman Sachs, a huge, obviously huge company, Georgetown education, becoming a speaker, winning these accolades, working for mayor, all these kind of humongous things and coming to realize that it would never be enough. It would never be enough because it's not really, there is no enough. There is never going to be an enough. And I think that's something that so many listeners and so many people in our community, I think will struggle with. So how did you come to give yourself that acknowledgement? How do you come to individuate in some way and being like, I am enough? Yeah. So that exchange that I told you about where she feel like she failed, that happened a year ago. And I actually spent a lot of time reflecting. And what I realized is that my mom actually is the best. She came to the US, right? American dream. She got full scholarships to her undergrad and grad, had four kids. Unfortunately, her husband passed away maybe about 15 years after they were married. I don't believe she had any familial support. She single-handedly raised four kids. All of us are in our 30s now. She now has two grandkids, but she supported us so relentlessly. And this is my privilege as a result of her. I graduate with no student debt. And I know for a lot of my peers, I have peers who still have six figures of student debt that they're paying off and worked in investment banking and went to HBS. But anyway, I don't want to be her. And as my mom, like on paper, the things she had to do. And so it's like, I have tons of respect for that. Yeah. And I think that your question, how did I decide that I was just going to be me is mm-hmm. because I realized maybe I was trying to be her, but mm. I don't want her life. That's so hard. It's so hard to leave your mm. whole family during a war to come here. That's why I want to have this intersection of like compassion and respect. And I don't want to vilify her. It's always funny because I feel like our generation, we always call the generation below entitled. But what entitlement really is to me is privilege. And how hard my mom worked made it so that I could be here and do all of this. Even when I made the pledge that I was going to start this disability empowerment endowed fund, like my mom wasn't happy about that. She's like, why are you starting this disability fund? But I think for me, and you mentioned like support system or a web of support, I think I had to learn that the person who gave birth to me and raised me might not be in my support system and that's okay. Can I find a second or another chosen family. And my support system is I have a coach, I've got my mental health therapist, I've got an occupational therapist, I've got friends, I've got different communities I'm in, I've got the community I built, the disability community I built, and that's okay. And I've come on a couple podcasts talking about my mom and I think oftentimes a lot of people are sad. They were like, I wish your mom could just see who you are. And she's seeing me through her lens, which is she's the hero of her own story. She worked her ass off. Like when I think about how hard she had to work, I'm just like, 
I'm tired. <laughs> but how can we also honor that intergenerationally, like things are starting to change? Like I've noticed in our generation, like in my mom's generation, the narrative was always around erasure. Erase your Asian identity. Don't lean into the fact that you're a daughter of immigrants or that your skin or hair color is different. Just blend in with the wallpaper and don't draw any attention to yourself and find that stable job and find a partner and have a family. Where now, I think given the rise of social media, and I would argue I'm going into adulthood, I became a digital native. Like we didn't have like cell phone, like we had the way old Mac computers back then. But like the rise of social media has given all of us a microphone where we mm -hmm. can be our own hype people and we can find people across the internet to be our hype people too. And it's a fascinating world that we live in. Because I think one of the things that I probably might want to do some reflecting on after this is I feel very celebrated, right? And a lot of things that I'm doing, but am I being celebrated by the people who really I want in my heart? And so actually what I'm thinking about is like, I'm celebrated by like social media masses, but I'm not celebrated by my mom. And is there a different weight that you put on that level of celebration? And is that okay? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. This is like what I do. In no, I love therapy. it. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that's such a big part of it is that being seen in the process, right? And sharing in the process. When you're talking about this, my thought process was just that one part where you're saying, there was this journey that your mom went through and do I want her life? And it is true. When our parents, my parents, same thing, right? In their generation, when they first came here, they were facing a very different set of challenges. Their assimilation was the end goal, right? To be not seen was a good thing because you don't want to be seen too much because when you're seen too much, there's danger, there's risk. What you want is stability. What you want is to have that financial stability, raise a family and live the good life. That's why they did all this work in immigrating here. I went through a process where I had to look at my parents and really be very grateful. And it's funny enough, because this is something that you've mentioned before, is that finding the balance between gratitude and grief is also finding that gratefulness and gratitude for the sense that, wow, they had to go through all this. And as a result of them going through all this, I now have the ability now to see their imperfections. And their imperfections doesn't have to be based around good, bad moralization, but actually being like, okay, I accept that this is where they're coming from. They weren't taught the same language of acceptance and love. I've been taught by my environment. And that's the privilege that I get to see that in, right? There's a quote that I really liked, and this was from John Adams, like an American, obviously one of the founding fathers. And I love this quote because he says, I must study politics and war that my sons and or children may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophies, and they must study mathematics and philosophy so that their children can study painting, poetry, music, and tapestry. And I love this quote because it's so true. Like our parents had to go through the lessons that they did and hold those values that we may now have the ability to see intersectionality and wellness and health and have the privilege of healing that trauma that they never got a chance to. Yeah, I love that quote. I'd never heard that quote before, but that's so true, right? It's like every generation before for paves the way for us. Actually, there's another quote. I'll counter your quote with another quote. <laughs> but it's from someone named Dr. Robert Bullard. And he says, the fight for justice is a marathon relay. And I relate that to your quote in the sense that we're always going to be fighting for justice. And this is like with my social justice hat on is we're always going to be fighting for justice. But when we hand off the baton, the world might look very different. But that next generation is still going to be fighting, but the issues might look different. Absolutely. That's deep. When you were coming out, this is such a big time, right? Like you were coming out 
founded Georgetown, you had started your movement already, and you went to Goldman Sachs to work. How did, you know, what was the internal monologue like in deciding then to say, you know what, I'm going to walk away from what my parents taught me of getting the good financial, quote unquote, stable financial job and being quiet, being that, and I'm going to speak out about my experiences. I'm going to lead a social movement. How did you make that transition? Because I feel like a lot of people will be scared to. It must be a terrifying process to step into the spotlight like that, both internally and externally. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I will say that there was a period of time where along this journey of becoming this disability advocate, the majority of the people who gave me really positive, encouraging comments were identified as Asian. And they were like, I'm not disabled, but I'm so excited to see an Asian woman like leading and being loud and sharing her story. And again, because assimilation was the pathway to success, like for my parents growing up, I had never thought about whether I was Asian or not. But I I think to come back to your question, I come into, I call myself like an accidental disability advocate, like an accidental entrepreneur and an accidental community builder. Because from a fundamental level, my core need that I was looking to solve when I started Diversability was not, I'm going to become the leader of this movement, but it was, I need friends. And I feel a lot of shame around a part of my body that I can't change. It's a permanent injury. And is there anyone else out there who has a story to share, who has been told that or has internalized that they can't. So it's funny because in the early days, we got featured in like The Guardian and we were on Forbes and The Wall Street Journal. And one of the questions that the journalists often asked is, and what about your family? And I think in this journey of feeling so isolated and alone in my experience, I actually wonder if I may have driven a wedge between, and I don't talk about this a lot. So my mom, because she had to work really hard to raise four kids, her work was actually in Taiwan. So she spent large amounts of time in Taiwan through those adolescent years. And I sometimes I'm now trying to reframe it, but I used to call my bedroom prison because it was the only place in my home that I felt safe that I wanted to be. And what's funny is I've gone back home a couple of times. And my last trip home, I was like, mom, I noticed that I don't have a desk in my room. Where did I do my homework? And she was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and the fact that I didn't even have a desk in the room, that was the only place that I felt safe to get any work done. I actually think I did work on the floor, but I bring that up because I I think that in those years after the car accident, I felt the depths of my aloneness. I was going to say solitude, but like solitude is like what I feel now when I'm alone because I have chosen to be alone. And I felt disconnected from everyone. I have a couple funny like memories when one of my brothers would go away to summer camp. I like wrote a greeting card about how excited I was that he was away for the summer. And I have this other like thing where I had my sister sign like a blank sheet of paper and then I wrote that it was like a contract that she would no longer be my sister. But I wanted to share those. I think as kids, we're like all a little angsty and don't like our siblings in one way or another. But I think to me, that just highlights like how disconnected I felt from all of them. So I think in response to your question around like that decision to speak up in spite of my family, I don't know, I just, and maybe this is like American individualism, <laughs> but I just need this so desperately. And sometimes when I look back at the journey, I remember where I was sitting the first time I shared the story of the car accident publicly and the tears that came out. And now literally on every podcast I've been on, they get some version of the story and now it's in a TED talk and it provides context, right? And so now I share it because I'm like, there's an intentional reason why I'm 
sharing this story, but before it was needing to heal through that and release pain of not feeling validated in that experience. But all of that to say, I think I just felt so alone up until that point. And oftentimes, even now, I look back at the past 25 years, I can't believe that girl became me, which is how you open this podcast. How did she become you? And I wonder if part of it is just like brute force <laughs> of this needs to get out. But I also feel so liberated just being myself. And there are no secrets anymore around this experience. And I validated it for me. And so by sharing that story of the car accident, that has given me a lot more space to start to explore other parts of my story where there might need to be some healing as well. And if you had an opportunity to go back to either talk to little 13-year-old Tiffany or a 13-year-old who was going through that same sense of loneliness, because I think that the intention behind creating this podcast is so that we could talk to that generation, the new generations, and say, look, I mean, you might experience the world in this sense of loneliness. You might feel like nobody else is going through what you're going through, but there are others and we have walked that path and this is what your future could look like. What would you say to that nine-year-old self, 13-year-old self, whichever age, you know, what would you say to that, that little girl? Yeah, the hard thing, because there's part of me that's, oh, it's going to get better. When you're in it, it does not feel like it at all. And I guess I'll share and then I'll answer the question. I'll share a good example is around affirmations. So I have a lot of friends who are like, to me, all you need is like positive affirmations. And the thing is, when you are caught in a trauma state, or even when you are living with PTSD like me, I can't positively affirm myself out of shit. If I'm in a triggered state, I'm in it. That's the reality that I'm seeing the lens through. And so one thing that I did learn is instead of saying one positive affirmation, like, you got this, or you're the best. But if I don't believe them, actually, those aren't going to work. But instead, I could say something like, you're doing the best you can, or you're on a path, or you're here. Do you see the difference in those types of affirmations? And so I think coming back to what message I would tell my nine-year-old self is... I don't know. It's going to be really hard. I have a friend who, a friend, Aish, A-I-S-H, and she says, you have overcome 100% of the obstacles that you've been through. To a nine-year-old, I don't think that would totally resonate. But even now, just looking back in terms of like when I'm going through hard times, I just remember like all of the really hard times I went through and how every single day that passes is a new opportunity to make some progress out of getting out of that dark space. I know I didn't really answer your question there, but I would just give her a hug. I would would just give mm -hmm. her a hug honestly when my family like physical touch wasn't really a thing <laughs> and so I'd give her and this is in my own Asian cultural context but I'd give her a hug and I would just want her to feel the warmth of my body and that she's being taken care of and I think in retrospect now coming back to like relationship with my mom I feel like I didn't get the emotional support that I needed but I can see all of the ways that she tried to give me support in other ways that have now led me to be able to do this and so again it comes back to this like compassion and respect for what it was a hustle it was a hustle for her but because yeah i think i'll just pause there there was so much there i wanted to unpack i know um, i was like there's so much more stream of consciousness that i am capable of but yeah i think a lot about nine-year-old tiffany and my work to be totally honest and i haven't quite figured out and this is part of my own journey is like how can i give her the grace that she was nine years old the good news is she doesn't blame herself for anything which i know sometimes that can happen in traumatic instances like that but how can i let her know what's the equivalent of both the figurative and the literal hug that like she's going to be taking care of. 
Yeah. I like what you said, which is that you're on the journey. The worst has happened. And this journey that you're on, it's going to get better. But how do we, I think at that age or even at any age, how do we know? There's somebody who's listening to this right now could be in their 30s and feel like, nope, this is it. This is as bad as it's going to get. But to know that it can get better is an acknowledgement. Yeah. I know you mentioned or you alluded to the, the spectrum of grief and gratitude. And yeah. I actually remind myself of that quote a lot when I'm going through a hard time, because if you're going mm -hmm. through a hard time, it means that you have the capacity to be on the other side of that and have an yeah, amazing, incredible that. time. Yeah, and to continue that. to think of life in terms of those dichotomies of, yeah. and maybe that's what I would tell nine-year-old Tiffany is, I know you feel really alone right now, but that also shows how much you have the capacity to be in community. And I literally built one. Um, <laughs> but it's also like, I had to have that experience of feeling so deeply alone to be able to know what it's like to be surrounded by people who just love and celebrate and support you. I love that. Are there any other stories? I love the space for stories. Are there any other stories that you feel like you would like to share? You said something interesting about the worst has happened. And I think in like 2017, or maybe even 2019, or 2018, sorry, too many years, but I experienced a level of heartbreak that I thought was like the worst ever. And I think one of the things I keep reminding myself of is even though a lot of people look at this story of the car accident and think what a horrific thing for a nine year old kid to go through, which I agree, watch my old TED talk or even different talks where I'm recounting the car accident, I'll cry because I literally can't believe that nine-year-old Tiffany went through that. But at the same time, like that's the fascinating thing about life is that it's not just that one story that happened 25 years ago. There have been so many other stories. The fascinating thing is like at nine years old, because I was a minor, my mom was my guardian, right? And in 2016, so six years ago, I was walking down the street in San Francisco and ended up getting attacked randomly. And oh I remember being not only really shocked, but now I was 28. And well, was it just somebody who just randomly it, it was, decided it was to but have you followed the past, I don't know, the past year of all of the random, and I'm not laughing because I don't, I'm laughing because no, no. I think I, I want to add like a level of levity to all conversations. But I will say when that traumatic thing happened of being, it wasn't premeditated or anything by being attacked randomly, who knew if it was Asian related, but we feel it yeah. because we oh, know yeah. what we look like. I just remember the way that I healed through that felt very different from nine-year-old trauma, the mm. nine-year-old, in the sense that now I was an adult and had the agency to seek mental health support, go to mm -hmm. a doctor, file a police mm -hmm. report. And I don't know, I wanted to share that because our lives are just going to continue to be filled with stories and stories that test us. Um, yeah. And even though I can say, yes, I've overcome the adversity that happened 25 years ago, I was still a kid who was like protected by my parents. And now as an adult, like now I have the agency to take control of because when I was nine, I feel like my narrative was still controlled or someone else was making most of my decisions. Um, yeah. And now I'm an adult. And so now going through hard things, I don't have the same coping mechanisms that I did 25 years ago when I had my mom taking care of everything. And I just wanted to use this opportunity to like highlight that nuance is that we're still going to go through hard things. But now, yeah, it's strange. And this is part of 
of the work in progress too, which is at nine years old, I can have a lot of compassion for her. And at 34, sometimes I'll go through some things and I'll be a lot less compassionate because I'm an adult and can make my own decisions. But how do I still have that level of care and compassion for nine-year-old Tiffany and have some of that for 34-year-old Tiffany too? I love that. You're right. The stories never really stop. The struggle will always come. We're always going to face. We can't control what we can't control. We can't control that people may attack us. And these things are unfortunately happening more and more. Hopefully by speaking out, we can stem it or we could mitigate the amount of growth that it goes through. A big part of it is taking into our own individual agency and being able to say, life doesn't always happen to me. Sometimes it can happen for me, by me, or through me. So we could take mm. ownership over it. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I will share something that happened yesterday as I'm traveling and recording this from a hotel room, but yeah, it was a little bit late at night and I had grabbed a late night bite to eat with my partner and someone came out who had a little bit too much to drink and was getting like a ride home. And there was, it was a woman and there was a man with her. And then I saw three other women come out of the bar who maybe I think were either staff or work there. And they just confirmed to make sure that she knew who the man was and the man was her boyfriend. But as we were talking about stop Asian hate, like for me to see like that level of like just checking in on someone and making sure the situation is okay, is like what I'm hoping to see like at scale. That made me really reassured to see something like that where like mm. I had too much to drink and if I'm with someone, they want to make sure that I actually know that person. So yeah, so just thinking of the role of bystanders. I think we just made a whole sidebar to a totally different topic. But yeah, I think that at least in that scenario and by speaking out more about anti-Asian violence that is happening, we'll start to see more situations where the bystanders actually do come in and ask questions and, and hopefully de-escalate situations. I love that. And it is true. We are a community and we're stronger when we're united, right? Like when we stand up for one another and when we are there fighting for one another, collectively, we just, we become stronger. And with all the work and all the positive you're putting on the world, how do our listeners best support what you're currently working on? Yeah, that's a good question. I will say before the original ask while we were still fundraising for the endowment fund was that if you had the means to support the endowment fund. But I will say you can follow all of the different things that I'm working working on across my social media channels at I'm Tiffany U. That's the letter I, the letter M, and my first and last name. And then you can follow all the work that Diversibility is doing, advocacy events. We're always looking for sponsorships and different partners. You can follow us across Diversibility. That's amazing. And of course, if you can donate, please do. And if you can spread the word, then please do. It literally is just what we're talking about. We are a community. And when we are supporting one another, the rising tide raises all ships. And this is where we're trying to get more united. Yeah. Uh, thank you and, so and, much. Oh, yeah. Can I no, say no, one please, other thing? Yeah. I will say it has been really cool over the last couple of years to get an opportunity to get more plugged into Asian communities like what we're doing right now. No, and you laugh, but there was a long period of time where I was doing this disability work and we weren't really that embraced within disability, within Asian communities. And I think that comes back to that intersectionality that I talked about before, where a disability identity previously was discriminated against and it was seen as shameful. And now I'm seeing a lot more conversations at this particular intersection of being Asian and disabled. So I really appreciate an opportunity to get to share my story and my work with your community and hopefully do some cross-pollinating across all of our different communities as well. Absolutely. And, and just to give you a little bit of uh, a context, when you responded back to us and you said you're interested in doing the thing, I had a really great day. <laughs> I was actually really excited because I think that this is, we're talking about generations, right? I think Asian Americans, 
parents have been portrayed in one generation of what they were. It was exactly the kind of our parents and our grandparents and that generation of early stage, there is a perception of what was right and what is accepted. And I think that we're seeing this new generation stepping forward who are not afraid to get loud, who are not afraid to speak up and on all the issues. And it is intersectional. Like Asian American is such a complex, multidimensional community. We're huge. We're 20 million strong, right? Like it's massive. And within us, all the voices that I think contribute to it. And every single time we bring on a diversity in our voice, we actually become way more encompassing and way more powerful as a result. So once again, so thankful and so excited to share this episode with us, with our audience. And yeah, thank you very much. Go check out Tiffany Yu's website. We're going to put it into the episode notes. Definitely go check out all the things that she is doing and continue to support her mission. Thank you so much for your time today, Tiffany. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month. So you can go out there and own your big Asian energy. <laughs>